the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard were walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. And then you shall shout, So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp, and they spent the night in camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bringing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them. And the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord. While the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once. And returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the Lord, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat, so the people went up into the city, every man straight, from before, straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house, this is Rahab, and bring out from the woman... From there, the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city within with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron. And they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab. The prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at the time, saying, Curse before the Lord, be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all of the land. I read the scriptures that we walk through every week, especially when we're walking through an Old Testament narrative with, for one reason. Though I'm going to say some things today that I hope will benefit your walk with Jesus, the only thing that is inspired and inerrant that we will hear from is God's Word. So I would encourage you as you spend time in Scripture this week, as you spend time in your personal devotion and your Bible study, to make sure that whatever the commentator says or whatever the preacher says, that those things do not become more important than what God actually says to us. 
Because His Word reigns and rules. And He teaches us how to follow Him from His Word. Those things are beneficial and they are helpful. Hear me say that. I would never undo how God has used various Bible studies in my life. But the Word of the Lord is what is active. It's what changes hearts. It's what transforms His people. My first interaction with the good people at Grace Bible Church was a FaceTime interview in 2016. Uh, I remember exactly where I was sitting. We were in what's called the Next Gen Room. I refer to it as the Next Generation Room because I do not like to abbreviate words. And while I sat in the, they sat in this room, I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee at my kitchen table with my laptop open and talking to these people. I remember who was sitting where in the exact order that they were sitting. I can remember the questions that were asked of me. And I remember there was one young man at the table who, now play, who plays drums for us pretty regularly named Greg who did not say a word. I kept thinking, that guy is so bored. There is no way this is going to go well. When uh, I finally did visit here, I had dinner with Greg and his wife and with one of our elders and his wife. And while we were at dinner that night, I noticed that Greg talked a little more. We were at El Toro because that's where you take people when they come to town. I've got a ranking of Mexican food here in town and it's on the list. But while I was sitting in this restaurant at El Toro, Greg said, I will never forget what stood out to me from your resume. And I thought to myself, what in the world could have stood out from my resume? He then quotes what I said. On my resume that I write for real people to read and choose to hire or fire me from. It says, I'm an avid fan of the Tennessee Volunteers, Peyton Manning, and I really like the Dallas Mavericks. I'm an infrequent visitor to the local fitness center, as well as an ill-equipped coach of children's athletics. Though I did start a flag football season once with a play-action bomb on my son's six- to eight-year-old upward football team. When, I re when Greg read this, he said, I think this is our guy. Well, that's neat. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad that carried over. I like a good game plan. When you coach flag football, you realize, especially in 5, 6, 7, and 8, that they typically run the ball all of the time. I've watched these other teams practice. I've watched them play. And though I ran in my mind through various scenarios and thoughts that people would be having of me while I coached this team and how these children behaved, questions like this. Does this look like chaos to everyone that's watching? Are the parents mad at me? Can I put other people's children in timeout? These are things running through my mind as I coach this team. All that I could really think was, I want to have a plan, a strategy. I want to move forward, and I want to do this in a way that changes things. I had a plan that made sense, at least in my mind. When we look in Joshua chapter 6, we have this bizarre battle. And it doesn't make sense. We, we read in chapter 5 last week in 13 through 15 where Joshua comes upon the commander of the army of the Lord. I was talking to one of our elders this morning. This commander of the army of the Lord, Joshua, will fall before. And as you read through the rest of the text, you see that Joshua realized that this is a manifestation of God. God revealing himself fully. And as we read through chapter 6, there's this interaction between him and the Lord. The commander of the army of the Lord, when Joshua says, are you for us or are you against us? He said, well, no. No. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. However, this commander, the Lord, who would speak to Joshua, 
says things to him and gives direction to him and when we read through the things that he says and the directions that he gives it does not seem as if these things would make sense they don't even line up to make sense when we read verse 1 Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel the way that the city was built no one should get in, no one should get out this is to be an insurmountable obstacle this should be a problem for anyone who comes upon it the very next verse, the Lord says to Joshua, we have them right where we want them. The Lord said to Joshua, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. We have this. I have put you in a good place. This is very much, this is very unlike how I put my wife in a good place when she is out of town and comes home. If Imagine that you, she comes home, my wife, to my home, and I tell her everything is ready for you. When she walks through the door, it doesn't seem as if anything is ready. There is laundry to be washed. There are clothes to be folded. There are things that need to be hung up. There is a bathroom that needs to be cleaned. There is granite that needs to be polished. This house is abysmal. And we've not even mentioned the children yet. Shepherd is... Doing shepherd things. Charlie is talking in his uh, gravelly voice like a dragon. My magnolia is just throwing clothes upside down. My alder has his drawers on backwards. Everything in this house says that nothing is together, but I'll walk out the door because I wanted her to believe that everything was together. The nation of Israel, when they walk up to this battle, they see a fortified city with fortified walls, and they're neither of those things. What do you mean we've got this under control? There's a difference between seeing God as powerful and seeing God as personal. The problem with the nation with Canaan was not that they believed that God was not powerful. We actually see that throughout all of Joshua. Whenever they're mentioned, it says that they're, whenever the Lord is mentioned and we talk about these people, here's what the Bible reads over and over. Their hearts melted before the Lord. Spoiler, Joshua is about to wipe out. Because you have a people who see God as powerful, but they don't know God as personal. Just truthfully, because I think we should be truthful when we talk. When you read through this passage, people struggle. Christian people struggle. How could God wipe out a people? That's nothing like the God who we paint pictures of. That's nothing like Jesus bouncing babies on his knee. That's nothing like the various disciples looking so happy in all these portraits where they look much more like Bradley Cooper than they do Jewish men. When we read through this, we struggle that this God and the God of the New Testament are the same. When I read through this alone, initially, I, I struggle with the text. This is a violent God. Was God hasty in His response to these people? I've been told my whole life that he's slow to anger. So let's, let's do a little visitation of these Canaanites. We meet them in the book of Genesis when God tells them 
God tells Abraham that they will come back to this land because the iniquity of these people is not complete. In the book of Numbers, we see the descendants of Canaan indulge in sexual immorality, child sacrifice, and idolatry, not to mention numerous other pagan shenanigans. Yet God, uh, this very same writer, he says in Deuteronomy about coming to a city that's against him, if the gate is open, if it opens up and they ask for mercy, that's what they will get. We see God walking the children of Israel up to a gate, a closed gate, and when they get to the gate, it's not open. We also see this exact same God in the Old Testament, in the book of Jonah, go to the Ninevites who were just as rebellious, if not more so, and he allowed them to repent when he called out the sins in their hearts. Our God is very patient. Our God is very slow to anger. And God will display the same mercy to the wicked, immoral Ninevites as we talked about. Romans chapter 2 tells us the intent of God's patience. God's patience towards me and his patience towards you, his patience towards the end, toward the end of the earth, comes down to this. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? ESV reads like this. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? These people receive the Lord with a closed gate. Though they saw him as powerful... They did not know him personally. A personal recognition of who this God is would be to receive him and the direction that he offers. How many of us who regularly attend places like this, if we just have an honest moment with ourselves, we see God as powerful, but we don't know him as personal? Because there's a tension between these two ideas. One of our life groups emailed me and they were wrestling with the idea about who's going to perish and why they're going to perish. And the, the struggle that they have is a struggle that we see in this text, the struggle that we see throughout the New Testament, throughout the Old Testament. Romans chapter 9, some, it tells us this. Some people are created as objects of wrath. The, the Bible says that. In Second Peter, Peter says this, God does not want anyone to perish. So there's a tension between these two ideas, a counterpoint to one another. But when we remove the tension, something terrible happens. Much worse than not having a full understanding of what the Bible says is when we give understanding to what the Bible says. When we remove the tension, we become Lord over the text rather than seeing Christ as our Lord because of the text. That is an unchristian place for any of us to stand. The same Jesus who says, depart from me because I never knew you. He weeps over Jerusalem. There is a tension in our Lord and a lack of tension in our hearts with his sovereignty and our free will is unscriptural and very unlike Jesus. You look through this text and here's what we find in verses 3 through 5. God's strange plan is unveiled towards these people. And I'm not into it if I am a Jewish person marching upon a wall that's closed off. He says to them in verse 3, march around the town once a day for six days. That doesn't help you win battles. This is a weird plan. 
March with the Ark of the Covenant. That's a religious thing. This is not a military thing. Put seven priests in front of the ark. Have you met pastors and priests? Why are we putting us up front? On the seventh day, march around Jericho seven times. Have the priests blow ram's horns as their march. On the seventh time around the seventh day, have the people shout. When the people shout, the walls will come down. This is not a good plan. How often does God give us plans that we don't love? But Joshua is obedient. He has some gets for the people. In verses 6 and 7, if you're a note taker, we see that he tells them to get ready. In verses 8 through 10, God tells them to get it together. Verses 11 through 14, get calm. Verses 15 through 20, get loud. Verse 21, get with it. 23 tells us to get her. Let's just look at those slowly together. Get ready, verses 6 and 7. Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. The ram's horn in the Old Testament is this musical instrument. I've only had one experience with one. I was at a church in Georgia. I was not preaching. I was attending. They said they were Baptists, but they were kind of Baptocostal, if you know what I'm talking about. There was a ram's horn on the, at the front of the room on this wooden cabinet. We're in the middle of a revival. The pastor grabs a ram, ram's horn. He tried to blow the horn. He could not blow the horn because he could not toot his own horn. His daughter takes it from him. And she begins to blow into the horn. It was a very awkward experience for someone who, for the majority of my Christian life, if I was moving like this, I would get in trouble. So when I'm watching them blow this horn, I begin to read as to what it means. You look into the Old Testament and you see this is used symbolically and musically to send God's people. Get ready, he says. Verses 8 through 10, get it together. We see that in the text. Joshua commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the trumpets. Verse 9, the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpet and the rear guard were walking after the ark while the trumpet blew continually. Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth. You keep yourselves controlled and focused. Though this situation does not seem to be one where that type of control should be in place. Calm down or get calm in verses 11 through 14. Joshua rose early, verse 12. The next morning the priest took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horn before the Lord walked on. They blew the trumpets and the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to camp. So they did this for six days. Can you imagine if this is your command for one day? You are planning to go to war. And God himself has said to you, going to war means you walk around this room and you blow a horn. Day two, walk around again and blow a horn. Day three, walk around again and blow a horn. Over and over, this is the command given to them by God. If you are one of the army of the Lord, one of the, of the army of the Israelites, what do you think about these commands? 
Do you think the people were loving it? Do you think there are any doubters? Do you think that it makes sense? Does God ever ask you to do something that doesn't make sense to you? What if faith is not so much about having everything line up on our spreadsheet? And it's more like this. In one hand, I trust. And in the other hand, I don't. So every day when I get up and I'm told to do something I don't understand again, I choose to trust. Some of us love to say really weird things. If God would just give me a sign. We've been given a sign as to what our life should look like. It is a blood splattered cross and an empty tomb. And our sign for life is sacrifice and resurrection. It reminds me of the soldier who says to Jesus, Lord, I believe you. Could you help my unbelief? So many of us spend so much time thinking we have everything together that we miss the one who actually does. God is commanding these people to do weird things and to use those weird things to see these people overcome, to see his mission advance. What weird things is God using in your life? The brokenness of your life, the disarray of your family. God uses strange things all the time. So God, I'm going to walk to you with an open hand that says, I believe. Can you give me the strength and help my unbelief? We see in 15 through 20, they get loud. On the seventh day, they rose up early at the dawn of the day and they march around the city in the same manner seven times so many laps it's like shopping at Christmas at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets Joshua said to the people shout for the Lord has given you the city and all the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her will be alive. I always like to point out that when you read through the Old Testament, if, if we're making television shows about this, they, they could be really epic. That David stuff could be epic if someone did it well. Oh, this well. Whenever we think about the Old Testament, we think of the action that's there movies. They stand out to us. That's the reason that when we have conversations about the new Star Wars films, which everyone doesn't love, but I like them, 
Because in The Last Jedi, did anyone see The Last Jedi? Okay, it's okay. We'll have a screening one night. It's a joke, people. I'm working through it. Uh, There is a battle scene that is so much better than anything in the other movies where we were supposed to believe that Obi-Wan and Darth Vader were warriors because they did this the whole time. Action movies. If you saw Dunkirk, anyone see Dunkirk? Okay. (sighs) Prayers. Uh, There is very little talking in that movie. It's all action. I saw the movie A Quiet Place with some of our church members and my wife. And one of those members, she did not like the movie. It's called A Quiet Place. Which means there's not much talking in, on the screen. And as we sat there, the conversation between this sweet, sweet church member and the rest of us, um, it continued throughout the time. There were jump moments in the movie. There were places where we were supposed to be startled, but those were uh, kind of submerged in the conversation that was not supposed to be taking place as this person played a game on their phone. And there came a point where Hope looked at me and she said, I've never been to a movie where there was no talking. And I said, I still haven't. But the action that was there, the jumps were supposed to make you jump. If we're making this into a movie, this isn't a good action movie. Joshua chapter 6 is a bad action movie. So much dialogue. Do you know how many verses of actual battle there are? One and a half. Verse 20 and 21. That's it. That's all we get. The people shouted and the trumpets were blown. Still not action. We're just blowing trumpets. If that's action, this is action. Every Sunday morning. As soon as the people heard the sounds of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. Here we go. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all of the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. That's it. Does this teach us anything about the God that we find in the Bible? When we look at it and consider the conversation that takes place around it, we learn a large thing about our God. Immediately after... We have one and a half verses of them seizing the city. We have numerous verses about how they are not to forget Rahab. Which shows us that our God has much more interest in saving than seizing. God cares about people who are far from Him. He cares about those who He has called to Himself. He desires to rescue We get a verse and a half about the action. But he tells them to go get her, 22 through 25, and it is very clear. You go. He's already mentioned it earlier. All of this horn blowing, all of this waiting, all of this marching. But God says, go in. Joshua says to the two men that had met Rahab, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out from the woman, from there. And the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in. They brought her out and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought her and all of her relatives and put them outside the camp. 
God rescues these people. We can learn so much about who God is in the way that He rescues. Uh, On the basis of this promise that she's been given, Rahab felt safe. Now remember where her house was. Does anyone remember? If, If you're familiar with the story, or you maybe remember from a couple weeks ago, where was her house? What just fell down? So it falls down in a way, God miraculously allows this wall to fall down in a way where though everything else seemed to crumble, she's safe. God works in this way. And here's the beauty. He uses his people and asks them to do very different things to accomplish this mission. But God declares her as safe in the same way that he has declared people safe throughout the Old Testament. Someone is marked safe from destruction throughout Scripture. Noah was safe in the ark. Lot was led from Sodom. The Israelites were safe at the Passover. We are safe because we are in Jesus. We've been rescued by Him. We look at the nation of Israel... And we learn by the way that God acts, though He does include them, because God very rarely works in ways where He does not include His people in His work. He does make them part of this. They just don't like the way they're part of it. We wouldn't like the way we're part of it. For Israel, this wasn't really a battle with Canaanites. It was a heart battle. Will I trust Him or won't I? Will I do what God has commanded me to do? For lots of us, the idea of following after Jesus is about Him convincing us enough. For us, living faith lives is about us being persuaded enough. If we are waiting to be completely convinced and persuaded of what we are supposed to be doing, then all we will ever do is wait. Most of us want more information. We are not doing anything with the information we've already been given. I love talking about the Bible. I love the Bible. I believe God works through His Word. But far too often when we're having these conversations about who Jesus is and how Jesus works, we have somehow confused the idea of what God teaches us from His Word. We've separated it what he teaches us from what we're to do with it. So we've made the Christian faith about having enough information. So here's what takes place in our, in our hearts if we're not careful. Especially if we have a, a leaning in towards education and information. We have a lot of information, right? I want to do this Bible study and that Bible study. And man, I may throw in this Bible study. If I could work that devotion, I'll listen to a sermon. I would love to have more information. And then we are confused as to how to live. And the reason that confusion exists is this. This information, because we have made it and puffed ourselves up with it, is not enough. So we keep asking for more information, though we've not done anything with the stuff that God said to us. We take in to, take, to breathe out. We, we show who God is because He has spoken to us from His Word. But His Word is an active Word. If our God cares more about saving than seizing, then why in the world do we not care about lost people being reached? 
If our God is powerful and personal, then why are we not living lives that show flip sides of this coin? This is who God is and how God works. He gives simple commands through the Bible. Do we have ready obedience that lines up with it? God's command, pretty simple, low-key, love your neighbor. Our response, you don't know my neighbor. Do the weird thing he's told you to do and let your neighbor worry about opening his gate. God's command, love other believers. You don't know what they did to me. How long am I supposed to tolerate that behavior from someone who calls himself a Christian and forgive them? Do the weird thing and be obedient when Jesus, Jesus, Jesus says, you forgive them 70 times 7. One pastor calls this mindset. Where expectation has to be met before our action takes place. Because the when slash then syndrome. When then is when they do this, then I'll do that. We use it with God. We use it with people. But every one of us better be thankful that God doesn't use it with us. When then is void, void of responsibility and it does not value the people that Jesus died for. What will we do with this powerfully personal God who has revealed himself in full as one who is the complete perfect balance of the tension of all being saved, of those, him not being desiring for any to perish, but some being created as children of wrath? What will we do when he calls us to things that we don't want to do because the, his plan for us doing those things seems problematic. This is an example of a bizarre battle, but we are in a bizarre battle every day because our bizarre battle is just to realize that when people wrong you, it's not really them. When people hurt you as followers of Jesus... It's not them. When non-Christians act like non-Christians and don't view things the way that we think Christians are supposed to view them even though that may not be the way Christians are supposed to view them. It's not a battle with them. We are not in a battle with flesh and blood but with Satan and hell itself. And for our hearts to not be in line and in tune with what God's heart is in line with demonstrates that we are a people of expectation, not action. And expectation void of action is the greatest display of unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, show me how to be what you would have me to be. And show me how to do what you would have me to do. Because you've called us to this world. You've called us to these people. 
And I pray that my understanding of who you are will always void my understanding of who they are. You call us. How will we respond? You know, think through in your own life. Who in your life? What neighbor? What friend? What co-worker? What family member? Are you placing expectations upon that don't show that you're trusting God in this? Maybe you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus. I want you to know that your hope is Jesus. That's it. It's your only hope. It'll only be your hope forever. That's, that's all you got. We trust in Jesus. And we simultaneously see him saying that judgment is coming and we depart from him. And we open the gate. I want to be with you. I want to place my faith in you. I want to throw myself on your mercy, Lord. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Jesus, we pray that your word has taught us. And I'm thankful that you are not waiting for me to do something before you act. You have graciously acted to save me. You have moved towards me. You've moved towards the believers in this room. So God, I pray this divine tension, this... this you, this God who is both powerful and personal. A God who saves, even though you do seize. I pray that what you care for will be what I care for. That what you would do would be what I would do. That all of the things that I know about you will show how, will demonstrate themselves and how I live for you. We ask all this in your name, Jesus, the powerful name of the Savior of the world. If you need me, I'm in the back corner of the room.